I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Okay, to start things off, I'd like you to meet Carol. Um, I, let's see, <laughs> I'm a woman of a certain age, and I um, was a midwife my whole life. Actually, I was the first midwife to be licensed to practice legally in New Hampshire. Carol Leonard is an author who lives in rural Maine, close to Acadia National Park. And in what is the weirdest twist I've ever experienced while interviewing anybody, as I was talking to Carol, I learned... This. I may have, and I, you have to ask your mother this, but I may be the first woman to ever touch you, Sam. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out, Carol was midwife at my birth. <laughs> <laughs> I did some fact checking, by the way, and learned it was in fact not Carol, but Carol's business partner who was the first woman to touch me at delivery. But anyway, that's not why we got in touch with Carol. We reached out to her because of what happened once she was done being a midwife. When she retired, she and her husband decided to move to Maine. We had the really good fortune um, in 2005 to find a great um, piece of land. It's 400 acres. Near where her great-grandfather is buried. It was their dream property, and they set about building their dream home. But almost right away, they started to have trouble. So we've got, I don't know, I would say at least 25 acres underwater, probably. Some of the flowage has got ominously close to where we, you know, you have to be 75 feet away from a wetlands in, in order to put in a septic system. And that was starting to be an issue. As Carol and her husband settled into their dream property, they soon realized a family of beaver also had their beady little eyes on it. And they were set on building their dream home. So we have these beavers that are genetically aber genetic aberrations that they can actually, um, they're mason beavers. They can actually pile up rocks and then they, they grout them in, they mortar them in with, with clay. And so it looks like the Tower of London. And those mason beavers wreaked some serious havoc. 
Their dams flooded about 25 acres of Carroll's property, and one of the beaver ponds started to catch more and more water, creeping closer and closer to where Carol and her husband were hoping to build their house. We have stone dams. Yeah. I'm serious. No, I'm they're no, they're insane. These beavers are insane. they're very cute. I mean, I I think they're adorable, but they're also they're rodents. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. If you pick a fight with a beaver, here's what you've got to consider. We have got other stuff to do. Jobs, meals to cook, soccer games. Beavers, on the other hand, they do one thing. Build dams. So today we're talking about trying to live with beavers, trying to trick beavers, and also whether to kill beavers. And also, this is a story about how, with respect to beavers, we may have backed ourselves into a trap and almost guaranteed our two species will come into conflict. Before we get into cohabitating with beavers, there are a few things you need to understand about them. First, Beavers are hardwired to stop water, to a crazy degree. They have what's called a damming instinct. It's activated by running water, and it is strong. In one famous experiment, beavers were put in a dry, concrete room with a speaker that played the sound of running water. Just the sound. No water. The beavers built a dam right over the speaker. They build these dams so that they can store sticks at the bottom of their ponds. That way, when winter comes and everything freezes, they've still got a stash of tasty, tender twigs that they can access safely all winter long. Also, beavers on land are tasty morsels for predators, whereas beavers in water are really hard to chase, so more water means more safe spaces for them. If you've never seen a proper, massive beaver dam before, you need to get yourself onto the internet right now and look at some. The biggest one in the world is about half a mile long and 13 feet tall. It was identified from outer space. When I was researching this story, a beaver enthusiast sent me a photo of a beaver dam that had been built right through the cab of an old pickup truck. Beavers' teeth grow constantly, and they actually have to keep chewing wood to keep them in check. And yes, they do actually just eat wood. They eat the cambium, the soft, spongy layer of new growth that's just under the bark. I'd love to play for you some beaver sounds here, but they don't make many. The thing you're most likely to hear is when they slap the water with their tails if you freak them out. And on the ecological side, beavers do all sorts of great things. Beaver ponds help to ease flooding downstream. They also slow the water down as it rushes towards the ocean, meaning they help to recharge drinking water aquifers. Their ponds support large numbers of bird species, fish, amphibians, otters. They're what's called a keystone species, the keystone to a whole ecosystem. And they've been kicking around in North America for two million years. What's new on the millennial timescale are Europeans. Europeans with an admiration for a specific part of the beaver. We know that 
London, on average, received 70,000 beaver pelts a year. This is Anne Carlos, economic historian from the University of Colorado Boulder and who studies the fur trade of the 17 and 1800s. Um, and the French trade, they were bringing in about 166,000 pelts a year. When the Europeans arrived in the U.S., first went the fur trappers and fur traders, driven by intense demand for top hats, made from felt, made from beaver fur. Because nothing says class like putting the world's second largest rodent on your noggin. After the fur traders came the farmers, farmers with an admiration for a byproduct of the beaver. Beaver were going to be both a source of cash for, for these settlers, and, of course, a problem for the settlers because beaver are competing for the same environment. Beaver ponds, once the dams are destroyed and the water drained, turn into something called beaver meadows, which, as it turns out, are fantastic places to grow crops. So in the early 1800s, farmers started to create these fertile beaver meadows by force. They trapped any remaining beavers on their property, destroyed the dams, drained the ponds, and voila, a field was born. All these pressures were bad news for beavers. And by about... 1830, I think, many of these populations were um, being seriously over-harvested and run down. One study found that 16 states lost more than 50% of their wetlands as settlers rolled in. Another six states, mostly in the Midwest, lost more than 85%. By the 1890s, while in Canada they came through okay, all throughout the northeast of the U.S., the beaver were virtually wiped out. Meanwhile, year after year, we're building. Those farms built on old beaver ponds are connected together by roads. More of the fields are subdivided and turned into housing developments. Bit by bit, we begin to occupy the space the beavers once held. And then in the early 1900s, we brought the beaver back. Why? Because for one, biologists had begun to recognize how good they are for ecosystems. But also, people liked having them around so they could trap them. We reintroduced them and helped them to build back up again until they numbered in the millions. We had set a trap. A trap for ourselves. Our roads were based on Native American trails, a high number of them. This is Pat Tate. He's the beaver biologist for Fish and Game here in New Hampshire. And uh, a high number of those Native American trails were based on game trails. He took me on a tour of his hometown, Hudson, and he's explaining why so much of our infrastructure is in a bad spot when it comes to conflicts with beavers. I can't say as a hunter who has walked all over the state of New Hampshire, their preferred wetland crossing every time has been a beaver dam. So, In other words, our roads and bridges, wherever they cross wetlands, very frequently, they're on top of natural pinch points, places where animals used to like to walk, Native Americans used to follow them, and beavers used to like to build dams. So all our roads are built in spots that are, like, prime, prime targets for beavers, basically. Our high number of our wetland crossings are prime spots where beavers would have naturally chose to build their dam. Yep. And then if we're and then if what we do is we 
build a road and then put a tiny hole through it for the water to drain through. It's basically like we've done most of the work for them. Correct. Let me make this progression really simple. We eliminated the beaver. We filled in maybe 50% of their ponds, or more in some places. We built our society on top, and then we brought them back. Is it any wonder that they keep flooding our roads and our septic systems? And when they do, is it any wonder that our first response is to get rid of them? And to be clear, when I say get rid of them, I mean trapping them. And when I say trapping them, I mean kill them. But Pat actually argues that, in fact, trapping some beaver is actually something you should feel good about. This is because of a concept called carrying capacity. It's the point at which... As many animals that are born that year, that many animals die that year. So, zero population growth. Why? Because as the numbers rise, more beavers starve to death, or catch respiratory infections, or get eaten by weasels, more die. Carrying capacity is the number of animals the land can sustain. Disease predation, and what's called intraspecific competition. Intraspecific competition is like sibling fights. Only their sibling fights are fights to the death. Yeah. Beavers, watch out. I've went into areas where people haven't trapped for a number of years and started removing animals and noticed that they are very bit up. And that's how beavers fight. They bite each other. And I once removed a beaver that had a beaver tooth in its back. And it, it didn't grow its own it tooth in its back. That was a tooth from another beaver that somehow broke off in the animal's back. As I've reduced numbers in the wetlands and went back subsequent years to trap, the amount of scarring and bite marks on the beaver decreases. So the individual beaver's health increases. So, so the, the argument is that you're, by, by taking some of them, you're making life better for the ones who remain. Yeah, you absolutely are. By removing individuals from a wetland system, you're, it's making more food available for the ones left behind. And they don't have to fight over resources or space or things like that because there's enough there. Do you think that this is at all like a scary metaphor for humans? <laughs> you know, humans and uh, global domination? <laughs> I won't make you comment yeah. on that. <laughs> no, I know what you're saying. It's, it's, it, gets, it gets very odd to think about. You've heard this logic. You have to cull the herd. You have to thin the population for the individuals to thrive. This is called the American system of wildlife management. Instead of dealing with a troublesome animal every time one floods a septic tank, we decide how big of a population of a species we want and then make adjustments based on that decision. Are deer eating the shoots off of too many saplings out in the forest? Increase the number of deer hunting permits issued. Are farmers complaining about losing livestock to coyotes? Relax hunting limitations on them. Are there so many beaver that they're expanding wetlands until they flood wells and roads? Call in trappers to reduce beaver populations in that location. If you've never seen one, the most common trap used to kill beaver is like a big rectangular spring. It's typically placed underwater in a place where beaver will swim through the middle of the square and hit a trigger, which brings down two stiff bars that catch the beaver right on the neck. We're working with a glorified mouse trap. Jeff Trainer's a trapper from southern New Hampshire, and he took us out on a cold winter day, walked us over the top of a beaver lodge. Because you don't want to spook them or 
or, or make them nervous too, too, too much. Do you ever hear them in there? Can you yep. ever hear them? Yeah. They do these little, it's almost like a wink, 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 wink. He found a spot he thought would work and chopped through the ice and set up the trap. Once I remove these safeties. There are still people who trap beaver in order to eat them to survive. Think First Nations in northern Canada. But there aren't many of them anymore. And while trappers do often sell the fur of the beaver they catch, a pelt doesn't go for very much these days. Most people who trap aren't doing it because they have to or because that's how they make a living. They do it because they want to. They want to connect with a tradition that they identify with. Or maybe they just like getting outside and doing the close observation of nature that trapping requires. And Jeff hears a lot of hypocrisy when he hears people call trapping immoral. He notes that you don't see the same outrage at housing developments or highways or parking lots, the forces that he sees really limiting the population of beaver. Our population isn't slowing down anytime soon. Um, and we, let's face it, we are the most invasive species on the planet. There's no doubt about it. And as we encroach more, we, we're pushing them more and more and more. So where is that overflow going? There's only so many places that they can go. It comes to a point where you can say, well, let nature take its course. Or you can say, you know, as, as human beings, can we manage this, this creature with moral wisdom? Moral wisdom. Make life better for some beavers by killing some others. This argument does not hold water for the most devoted beaver believers. You know, you always hear, okay, we have to kill the beavers so they don't get hungry. And if you're an individual beaver, you know, you can imagine which choice they would choose if they had had one to make, right? (laughs) Would you rather be hungry or dead? This is Skip Lyle, founder of Beaver Deceivers International. He has spent decades designing devices that, through strategically placed pipes, fences, and grates, gently redirect beavers away from human habitats. These are solutions that people are trying. People like Art Walensky. The whole situation is uh, unusual. We have two ponds, actually, an upper pond and a lower pond. He's retired and lives in a little development in New Hampshire with other retired folks. Out behind the houses are two big old beaver ponds, separated by a little access road. And uh, there are two large, four large culvert pipes that go underneath the, uh, the road. And running alongside that access road is a big old beaver dam. It goes up just about 300 feet. You can see all the way up to the turn there where that uh, evergreen is. One of the ponds drains under the road to the other pond. And the beavers started to dam up the pipes, which led to even more flooding. That flooding could have led the roadbed to fail, and underneath this particular road was the sewer line for all of the houses here. So if the beavers win, there goes the neighborhood. What we put in was uh, what's called a beaver deceiver. A few years later, Art also put in something called a pond leveler, a.k.a. a beaver pipe or flow device. It's a large uh, 24-inch uh, diameter, not, I'm sorry, 19-inch diameter. Well, that's a big, a big pipe. pipe. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big flexible pipe. It goes right through the dam and basically tricks the beaver into thinking the dam's working when it isn't. To round out his defenses, Art also wraps the bases of any trees that he wants to save with a wire mesh that beavers can't chew their way through. 
so this is what people who oppose trapping say we should be doing instead. Use tricks to limit where and how much habitat the beavers can make. That way, when the little beaver babies grow up and start their own little beaver family, they won't be able to just make this pond bigger and move over to the other side. They'll have to go elsewhere. That means instead of coming into conflict with art, they'll come into conflict with things that normally keep beaver populations in check, like predators or other beaver, or maybe they'll just wind up in someone else's backyard. But the point is, according to folks like Skip Lyle, beavers don't need us. Beavers are a two-million-year-old species, right? By some miracle, they survived just fine. They suffered, they died, they thrived, but they did it on their own, like most species do. You know, we don't manage chickadees, you know, to make sure that, you know, some chickadees aren't hungry sometimes. Skip argues that less trapping would mean more beavers, more wetlands, more water in the aquifers, more birds, and other wildlife. Oftentimes, the decision to cull wildlife is based on ecosystem science. Government biologists go out to try to estimate how many animals the land can sustain. That, again, is the carrying capacity. But sometimes, this decision is based on our willingness to tolerate animals. This, almost euphemistically, we call the cultural carrying capacity. And for beavers, it's often that cultural limit, not the actual limits of the habitat, that they bump up against. For the beavers on Art Walensky's property, they're bumping up against someone who's a member of Voices for Wildlife, an animal welfare advocacy group. I mean, I was raised on a farm. I used to hunt and I used to trap. I would never do it now uh, because back in those days, and probably, again, uh, if you look at most of the trappers who are my age or even younger, were raised in a time when people thought that animals had no feelings, animals didn't think, animals weren't rational. Well, we know that's not the case now. So that we know they feel that pain, we know they feel that loss, and so on. So, if we did what art wants and banned trapping, what would happen? Turns out, we have some idea. In 1996, um, there was a ballot referendum in Massachusetts that was pushed forward by animal welfare groups that wanted to eliminate the use of what they considered to be uh, inhumane traps. Massachusetts is one of a handful of states that has banned certain traps. Dave Waddles is the fur bearer biologist down there for Mass Wildlife. He's kind of the Massachusetts version of Pat Tate. After the referendum passed, the beaver population tripled. Three times the beaver, which, if you're a wildlife advocate, you probably see as a win. But three times the beaver means three times the beaver mischief. And as a result, the conflict with people and the complaints we received uh, essentially skyrocketed. Uh, so in 2001, the state legislature uh, looked at this again and amended the laws um, to pass a new law. And essentially this time, they now develop an emergency permitting process. Emergency permits for trapping. Now, though, those permits are given out by towns instead of the state. From Dave's perspective, this has all sorts of downsides. Nobody has any idea how much trapping happens in Massachusetts anymore. 
beaver can be trapped in the spring, so you might kill mothers and leave young kits to be abandoned. And what happens to beavers that are killed under a nuisance permit? Previously, the the, the harvest that was done um, during our regulated trapping season, um, those animals were used by trappers. The pelts were used. Other portions of the animal were used, uh, and it was a valuable resource for them. Uh, the beaver that are now taken during these emergency permits, quite often they're just trapped and then thrown into a, a landfill and, and not used at all. It strikes me that this comes down to a question of how should beavers be controlled? Should we kill them, skin them and eat them and limit them that way? Or should we put in sneaky arrangements of pipes and fences, thereby limiting how much they can expand their habitat and then let natural forces, starvation, predation and disease, do the rest? Because let's be real here. We're not about to let them expand back into all the places where they were living before the Europeans arrived. Think about it. If a beaver starts to seriously flood your property, your basement, if that flooding could cost you thousands and thousands of dollars, what would you do? Well, it's, you know, I just, I always thought I was kind of on the other side when I was doing my midwifery. You know, I'm a hippie girl. This is Carol Leonard again. You remember Carol, right? Wanted to build a house in Maine. Thought she was the first woman to ever touch me. For seven years, I said, you can't kill them. You have to, we have to outwit them. That's back when I thought that you could actually outwit a beaver, but you can't. I mean, <laughs> it's impossible. But I, you know, in my naivete, I said, well, we'll try these beaver deceivers and beaver bafflers and all these doohickers. The beavers were flooding a spot that was getting dangerously close to where they wanted to build their septic system. And for years, Carol tried and failed to make these beaver devices work. First, she tried a beaver deceiver. Then we tried a beaver baffler, which I think is a PVC pipe, and you drill holes in it. Um, that's another one that's supposed to, beavers aren't supposed to be able to figure out how to stop the flow. But the last one that we made, the beavers actually stole and hid somewhere, and we can't even find it. To give credit to his side of the argument, Skip Lyle would say that Carol was just not doing it right. But regardless, eventually, Carol threw up her hands. So it did get to a point where I finally said, all right. I'm going to learn how to trap them, and we're going to eat them. And my husband thought that I was fooling, but I did. I, I apprenticed with a um, trapper in New Hampshire, and um, I've been eating beaver ever since. It is a whole other different, you know, it's a whole different culture. But, you know, when you start thinking about hunting, um, we're, we are – meat eaters. We're, you know, we are hunter-gatherers. It's part of our, who we are. And so um, to be able to turn a blind eye to, to that is just a blind eye. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it just those people that are the animal rights activists, well, that's great. I think that the best, better place for them to be protesting would be the slaughter yards in Chicago. You know, those, you know, those are just horrible. I think the the traditions of hunting and trapping in New England are um, good, healthy traditions. And I just don't, I, I can't talk against hunters. I can't. I'm a meat eater. Carol says over the years, she's trapped around 30 beaver from her property. There's still many of them left, a little downstream from the house lot. 
But in 2015, they were able to start building that dream home. And now they've finished. That pond that was threatening her septic system is no longer getting any bigger. The word is out. It's a really dangerous place for beavers to be. So <laughs> <laughs> They've told their friends. Yeah, they have. They're, they're, they haven't been back. Beavers and people. We like to live in the same places. And if you ever find that a family of them are eyeing the same spot as you, well, good luck. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Logan Shannon, with help from Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Molly Donahue. Thanks this week to Ben Goldfarb and Peter Busher, both beaver pros who helped me to sort this week's story out. Also thanks to Carol Leonard, who has a couple of books that you might be interested in. Bad Beaver Tales is a collection of her short stories about their new place in Maine, and Ladies' Hands, Lion's Heart is about being a midwife in New Hampshire. If you have not already, you should check out our website, outsideinradio.org. There are some beautiful beaver-themed photos, and you can see a time-lapse of a beaver pipe being installed. If you haven't followed us on social media yet, you should. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Outside In Radio. That's where all the hijinks happen. Music this week was from Ari De Niro, Blue Dot Sessions, Revolution Void, Jason Leonard, and Poddington Bear. And our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Yeah. Yeah.